Well, it's a joy to be here and bring the Word to you this evening, and I'd invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And our primary text this evening is going to be in verses 8 through 11, but we'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 11 to gather the context. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Well, obviously, this is coming toward the end of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And so as we move into our passage this evening, I want to just give us a a quick uh, overview and perhaps a review of what is taking place in the book of Thessalonians, and it will provide the context for what Paul says and what we look at in detail in verses 8 through 11. The recipients of this letter are Thessalonian Christians, those in Thessalonica who are in Christ. And we see that uh, back in chapter 1, as Paul is recounting how the gospel came to them um, and how they received it, in verse 9... He talks about their testimony in the region. He says, For they themselves, those who heard, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul is writing to believers. And in Acts 17 and verses 1 through 9, you can read the account of how the gospel came to Thessalonica and the opposition that they experienced at the outset of the gospel as they turned to Christ. But these are believers, and they are believers in whom Paul is deeply invested. In chapter 2 and verse 8, he expresses his affection for these believers. Look at that verse, if you will, chapter 2, verse 8. 
He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. This is a letter of affection to believers that Paul loves, that he has poured himself into for the sake of the gospel and for building them up in Christ. These are the recipients of the letter to the Thessalonians. But why did Paul write this letter? What are the reasons that he wrote this letter? Well, we could go into detail and spend the whole hour digging into that, but let me just summarize here uh, this evening. They were facing affliction. These were afflicted believers. And again, in chapter 2, in verse 14, "...for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews." who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. And he goes on to describe and and build some of the affliction that they faced all the way even into chapter 3. He was burdened because they were facing opposition. They were facing uh, affliction by opponents of the gospel. But not only were they afflicted, they were also like any believer, tempted. They were tempted. And the most obvious portion of Scripture that identifies this is in chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let's pick up in verse 1 where Paul begins a very direct application. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. I just want to pause there for a moment and notice what Paul says, which is a repeated theme in Paul's letter. If you're in Christ, there's a way to walk that pleases Christ. And that pleases God. And the assumption is that believers are doing that, but also that we need to be encouraged to keep on doing it. And he captures that in that that first verse. So now he's going to expand on that. Verse 2, "...for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus." For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you, each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Paul recognized that the Thessalonians lived in a pagan culture, that they had to deal with the flesh, and so he reminded them of God's will, their sanctification that they abstain from sexual immorality. 
They're tempted, just like any other believer. We're all tempted. We're tempted in many ways. There also seems to be an element of discouragement and uncertainty among the Thessalonian church. And we find this indicated in verse 13 of chapter 4. For we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. There was some uncertainty. You think about this. This is a first century church. The gospel is new. I mean, we, we take for granted our knowledge of what happens when believers die. But there was some uncertainty among the Thessalonians about this. What happens to those who have already died? Will they be raised? You know, are, will they experience the same blessings that we're anticipating when Christ returns? There was some uncertainty and perhaps some discouragement. And so he's writing, Paul is writing this to believers, Thessalonian Christians who are facing affliction, are facing temptation, discouragement, and uncertainty. Does that maybe sound familiar? It's life for a believer. We have the ebb and flow of living in this flesh, and we face afflictions, we face temptation, we face discouragement, we face uncertainty. But then there's one other aspect of this letter that I'd like to point out, and that is the repeated theme. We've seen the recipients, it's the Thessalonian Christians, the reasons, affliction, temptation, discouragement, uncertainty. But what's the repeated theme? What does Paul keep on going back to in this letter? Well, he does it repeatedly and at the end of our chapter divisions. If you remember when he wrote this letter, it was just that. It was a letter. It didn't have chapter and verse divisions. But the way it's organized in our Bible with these divisions, it's very helpful. So look at verse 10 of chapter 1, and let's see if we can pick up this theme together, this repeated theme together. I'm just going to read the statements. Verse 10 of chapter 1, to wait for His Son from heaven. Flip over to chapter 2 or across the page, whatever it is in your Bible, and look at verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at His coming? And then down in chapter 3, Verse 13, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. And then chapter 4, verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then in chapter 5, 
verse 23. Chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. What's the theme? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here are these believers... They're afflicted, they're tempted, discouraged, uncertain. And Paul brings them back again and again and again and again to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in my Bible, I have I like to use very high-tech marking instruments, Crayola pencils. So I have those verses underlined in purple Crayola pencil. So every time I read the book of 1 Thessalonians, I'm reminded Jesus is coming. And I need to remember that, just like the Thessalonians needed to remember that. So that gives us an orientation. Paul is bringing to bear the reality of the outcome of salvation, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to these afflicted tempted, discouraged, uncertain believers. When we move into chapter 5, he gives us a couple of details about the coming of the Lord. Back in chapter 4, in verses 13 through 18, he reminds us that the Lord's going to come and we're going to be caught up in the air to meet the Lord and be with Him forever. This is encouragement for believers. It's the joyful expectation of believers. But he moves to the other side in chapter 5, and he says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, in verse 1, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And he's talking here particularly and applying it to people who are not looking for the coming of the Lord, while people are saying, verse 3, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So on the one hand, the return of Jesus Christ is the joyful expectation for those who are in Christ. On the other side, it is an unexpected Thus, the picture of the thief. It is an unexpected but inevitable. Thus, the picture of the woman going into labor. The baby will come. It's inevitable. It's unexpected and inevitable judgment for those outside of Christ. Christ is coming a joyful expectation, an unexpected but inevitable judgment. And what we find Paul doing as he he brings this letter toward the conclusion is encouraging believers with these realities. Verse 18 of chapter 4, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
Verse 11 of chapter 5, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. He's equipping them to encourage one another on the basis of the coming of the Lord. I had a picture come to mind in in just thinking about what Paul's doing here. When our girls were younger, we would take them to playgrounds that sometimes had those little climbing walls on the playground set. And, you know, going up is fine. But when you're little and you haven't learned how how to find the footholds when you're coming down by faith, it's a little bit frightening. And so... The little one is hanging there on that, you know, to them, extremely dangerous five-foot climbing wall. And and their little foot and leg is is waving around searching for that foothold, and they can't find it. And and as it waves around, they become more and more anxious and, and concerned that they're going to fall to their death. And what what does a parent do? Well, should take takes that little foot and guides it to that foothold. It says, there, n- now you can step down. And in a sense, this is what Paul is doing to these afflicted, tempted, discouraged, uncertain believers, saying, let, let me guide you, let me encourage you and guide you to this foothold of the Lord Jesus and His return. And so that is what he does, and that is what we'll focus on here in these remaining minutes that we have together from verses 8 through 11 of chapter 5. The day of the Lord is coming. It's going to be a day of judgment and destruction for those who are in darkness, for those who are outside of Christ. But, but there's a contrast for those who are in Christ. And so verse 8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another. Build one another up just as you are doing. The theme of this passage is very simple. Be sober because of your destiny. Be sober because of your destiny. And that theme just reflects the two main verbs in the passage. In verse 8, the main verb is, let us be sober. And then in verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but, and it's understood, He has destined us to obtain salvation. That's the grounds for sobriety. Be sober, because of your destiny. It ties together those two main verbs. So I want to just take a moment before moving into the main points of the passage to consider what sobriety is. 
When Paul says, be sober, what what is he saying? Well, within this passage, we have a clue. Look at verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us be sober. Right? So he he gives us a a contrast of, of sleepiness and drunkenness. And just to take, pick up on one of those, what happens when someone is drunk? They have a distorted sense of reality. They live in fantasy land, in Mythville. And so sobriety is the opposite of that. Sobriety is, is not having a distorted sense of reality. It's living according to what is certain. It's living according to what is real. And if you turn a few pages in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we have a similar contrast that, that helps and substantiates that, that point of what sobriety is. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul has instructed Timothy here to preach the Word. And then in verse 3, he tells Timothy, "...for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching." But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Okay, so what is it when people accumulate for themselves teachers who scratch their ears, teachers who say, this is your best life now, Teachers who are, who are making you feel good and are promoting false doctrines, what are they doing? Well, Paul says they're promoting mythology. <laughs> they're promoting fantasy. And people who are accumulating those kind of teachers are living in a fantasy, mythological, esoterical nothingness. And I have no idea what I just said. And that's the point. Timothy, you preach the Word because that's real. It's God's revelation. And those who reject it, they're living in fantasy land. So, verse 5, the contrast, as for you, Timothy, the one preaching the Word, be sober-minded. Live according to the realities. Live in contrast to those who live in mythological fantasy land. What does it mean to be sober? Being a person who thinks and lives according to the certainties, according to the realities, the heavenly realities, the eternal realities, the realities that are rooted in the truth of who God is, the God who designed the whole thing and is over the whole thing. Live according to those certainties. Be sober because of your destiny. So believer, our life, as we'll find, should be ordered and oriented to the coming of the Lord Jesus. That's real. That's real. Our life should be oriented so that our interaction with others moves them toward holiness and toward Christ. 
so that our conversation is filled with things that are for real, that matter. And unbeliever, as an appeal, this is real. The coming of the Lord is real. The day of the Lord is real. And, and you need to turn to the one who will return unexpectedly and inevitably in repentance and faith. And when you turn to Christ in repentance and faith, you are received in Christ as one now expectantly waiting for his return, cleansed by his blood and anticipating eternity with him. Be sober because of your destiny. In verse 8, Paul lays out directions for sobriety. So main point number one, directions for sobriety. You know, it's one thing to say, be sober. I, I think in, in shame how often I, I've told my children to do something and then didn't tell them how to do it. <laughs> Just do it. I know you're only one and a half, but you should know this. Paul doesn't do that to us. Be sober. So what does that look like? How, how do I think soberly? How do I think soberly when I'm tempted to live in fantasy land? But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Directions for sobriety, and there are two. Direction number one. Direction number one, since we belong to the day, in contrast to those who are of the night. And so direction number one, think about your different position. Remember, the context here is the day of the Lord. There, there is coming a day when those outside of Christ, when those who are in darkness, and, and John says they're in darkness because they love their sin. John chapter 3. They're going to be destroyed in the day of the Lord. But Paul says, you are of the day. You are of the day. Think about your different position. There's so much that Scripture has to say about what God did for us in Christ when He transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. When He opened our eyes to see the wickedness of our sin, to see the glory of God and the fullness of the work of redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of those things are what makes you of the day of the light. Just one passage in 1 John chapter 1, in verse 7, John writes, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. What does it mean to be in the day? It means that you've been cleansed. It means that God has opened your eyes. 
miraculously, like he opened the eyes of the blind man in John chapter 9, so that you could worship God, so that you could be a worshiper of God through Jesus Christ. Think about, think about your different position. You know, it, it's sometimes when we're discouraged and people say, well, you know, start by thinking about your salvation. It, it sounds cliche. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, duh, yeah, that, I should. That's not, no, that Paul says, yes, that's exactly what you should do. You were rescued. You were in darkness. You couldn't get out. You were like those who over which they, they don't know what they're stumbling. Proverbs 4.19 says, but now you're of the day. This is a miraculous work. And when you're, when you're in the dumps of, of temptation and affliction, when you're tempted to look around and, and look for exit ramps and to pleasure instead of looking to the Lord, no, remember what the Lord has done for you. Be sober-minded. Remember your different position. But then on the other side of the command, let us be sober, we have a second direction. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So direction number one, think about your different position. The second direction, put on your defensive provisions. Put on your defensive provisions. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. This breastplate, the picture that Paul is giving us is, is a reality that in this world, we are not in a neutral zone. This is a war zone. We have an enemy, the devil. We have an enemy in our flesh. We have an enemy in this world. And we need to equip ourselves as if we're going into battle each day because we are. So put on the protective defensive mechanisms that God has provided. Put on the breastplate of faith and of love. What is it? What am I putting on when I'm putting on the breastplate of faith and love? Well, my faith, my faith is defined by its object. My faith is defined by its object, and I put on the breastplate of faith and love as by faith I grip the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the object of my faith. And I put on, I put on what defends me from the world, from the wiles of the devil by grasping the Lord Jesus Christ, by growing in the grace and knowledge of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, by opening my Bible and reading about my Savior, and by listening to the messages about my Savior, by exalting in the preeminence and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I'm learning more of Christ, I keep responding, yes, that is my Savior. Yes, that is my Lord. I believe in the Lord Jesus. I believe that is true of Him. I'm grasping Christ and I'm clinging to Christ by faith. And a true grasp of Christ by faith is not simply an intellectual assent to what we find of the facts of Christ's life and the facts of Christ's death in the Scripture, although it includes that, 
But it's a grasp of Christ that stirs our affections to love our Savior. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, whom having not seen, speaking of Christ, you love. And you believe in Him, waiting for Him to come with joy. You see what's happening? Peter's describing a faith that grasps Christ and that stirs the affections toward Christ of love for Christ and of joy in Christ. This is the breastplate of faith and love. And as we grasp Christ and hold fast to Christ and stir our affections for Christ, then the outflow of that is a love for one another a Christ-like love for one another. This is our defensive mechanism in preparation for the coming of the Lord. This is our present reality. Put on the breastplate of faith and love. Arm yourself with the breastplate of faith and love. And then he goes on and he doesn't give us the full panoply here as, as Ephesians 6 does. But he goes on and says, and put on for the helmet the hope of salvation, the assurance of salvation. And this isn't, I hope I'm saved. This is an assurance of this final salvation that he's going to fill out in a couple of verses. But the second element of that provision then is I'm I'm in the present reality by faith. I'm grasping Christ. I'm gripping Christ. I'm holding fast to Christ. My affections are stirred up as I think about what Christ has done and seeing Him. And I and I let it overflow in my love for one another. This this is the present reality of life. And at the same time, I'm I'm having my mind fixed on the future certainties of the fullness of my salvation in the face of Jesus Christ. Put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. Folks, to not grasp Christ, to not cling to Christ, to not consider your eternal hope in Christ's return is to walk through this battle zone in a t-shirt when God has given you a breastplate and a helmet. How do we be sober-minded? Well, we think about our different position. We're of the day. There was a transformation that happened, and we put on our defensive provisions. Moving on in verses 9 and 10, We've seen the directions for sobriety. Now we come to the description of your destiny. The description of your destiny. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. (laughs) I don't know how I'm going to fit this in in the time we have left. The description of your destiny. Paul states it negatively to begin with. For God has not destined us for wrath. Again, it's an echo of the fact, but you are of the day. 
You're not of the night, you're of the day. God has not destined you. He has not set you for wrath. He's not appointed you for wrath. And, and again, this is one of those statements where Paul is, is simply resurrecting apparently previous teaching. And, it, and it's so short and so compact. I mean, these two verses, are it's just zip file language. He compresses the entirety of the gospel in, in, in these statements. But what is this wrath from which we're saved? Well, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, again, as he's writing a second letter to encourage the Thessalonians, Paul reminds them that those who are afflicted will, afflicting them will be afflicted eternally. And it's so sobering. He's not gloating over this. It's just, remember, he's thinking sober-minded. This is the reality. This is the reality. If, if, we don't, if we don't take these verses seriously, we're, not, we're living in mytho- mythological fantasy land. Look at what he says in verses 9 and 10. Actually, verse, uh, verse 8. When Jesus comes in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus... They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because, of our, testimony, because our testimony to you was believed. Look at verse 9 and the combination of terms. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. This is the wrath that he's saying back in chapter 5 that you are saved from. Eternal destruction. What is it like to be eternally destroyed? What is it like to be destroyed? When a building falls, it collapses, it's destroyed, and it's done. When you face some kind of physical injury, a trauma, right? The, the event happens and then it's done. This idea of eternal destruction implies the ability to withstand and feel all the agony of the destructive forces of hellfire designed for the devil and his angels is what Jesus says in Matthew 25:41 without end being destroyed continually being destroyed without end it is it is devastating to even begin to try to comprehend what eternal separation from God is, what eternal separation from Christ is. And again, I would just appeal to those who are outside of Christ 
You, you need to understand that this is your destiny. You are under the condemnation of God, and this is your eternal destiny. And yet, God calls you to turn to Him and to repent and to find refuge in His Son. Those that are repentant, whom the Lord forgives, whom God justifies in Christ, then are not destined for wrath. That no longer is your destiny. Negatively, you are not destined for that wrath. That's what you deserve because of your sins against an infinitely holy God, but you've been redeemed, you've been justified, you've been accepted in Christ, and and your position is one seated in the heavenlies with Jesus. You are not destined for wrath. And it's according to God's plan from eternity past. He set you apart and saved you from that. Positively, back to verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not destined for wrath, but we've been chosen in Christ for the fullness of our salvation. Paul, in, in the term obtain salvation, he's not saying that You know, there's a potential that you might obtain salvation. He's speaking, he's using salvation to stand for the completed work of glorification, the completed work of the fullness of your salvation. Romans 8, whom he justified, he glorified. And there's a a bunch of other statements in there. But the, the, the whole point is that in Christ, When you come to Christ, when God justifies you, the deal is sealed through eternity. And it's sealed because of his plan from eternity past. You're not destined for wrath, but you've been destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only means of salvation is through Christ alone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Negatively, you're not destined for wrath. Positively, you have the anticipation of completed salvation. But then there's also a certainty. A certainty. In verse 10 as he fills out and explains what it means to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. You obtain salvation through Jesus who died for you. And the verb tense that Paul uses here is a completed action. He died. He accomplished your redemption. He died for you. He died with you on his mind to obtain your redemption. It was specific for the people that God the Father had ordained to give to his son, Jesus Christ. He died for you. 
And he goes on and says, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. In the ESV here, it says we might live with him. I think in the New American Standard, it says we will live with him. But what's behind that verb is the same tense of when Paul said he died for us. It's completed action. The completed action that he died for you and the completed action that you live with him. It's certain. Living with Jesus, if I can put it in this way, for those in Christ, living with Jesus is as certain as his death for you. The future reality of being in his presence, the future reality of being completely glorified, of being free from this body of sin forever and ever, it's as certain as the past event of the cross of Christ. And and this is what must anchor believers that, that were anchored in the cross and that were anchored in the coming. Those are two certainties that we constantly run to to raise ourselves out of the depths of mythology and fantasy in this world to the heights of the reality of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. There is absolute certainty that you will live with Jesus Christ. And then this statement here is just incredible in verse 10. It it just adds to the certainty and to the joy and, and to the comfort that we have in Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're living or whether we've died, it doesn't matter if you're in Christ. You'll be with Him. You'll live with Him. When you think about this, you know, think about all the mundane things we do in life. What if Christ comes when I'm you know, mowing the grass or what, you know, whatever? You'll be with Him. You'll be with Him. But folks, th- think, about, think about when, when this hand and the hand that's attached to your body never moves again. It's silent in the grave. We have, probably many of us have relatives that have died in Christ, and that's, that's where they are. They, they're, not, they're not going to move. I have a neighbor that puts it very picturesquely. I, every now and then we'll walk by his house and I'll ask how he's doing. He's like, well, I'm still on this side of the grass. Well, one day we're not. We're going to be on the other side of the grass. And, and we can't do anything. We can't earn any more of our salvation because we never earned it in the first place. And no matter how long we're laying there asleep, our bodies asleep, our souls with the Lord, no matter how many years, how many decades, how many centuries, how many millennia, when He comes, you're going to live with Him. 
Whether you're awake or whether you're asleep, you're going to live with the Lord. It's that certain. The description of your destiny, negatively, you're not destined for wrath. Positively, you're destined to experience the completion of salvation in the presence of Christ. And certainly, whether you awake, whether you're awake or whether you are asleep when he comes, you're with the Lord. Full stop. So finally, let's come to verse 11. Paul's instructing us, be sober. Be sober because of your destiny. He's given us directions for our sobriety. Think about your different position. Put on your defensive provisions, the description of your destiny. And now verse 11, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We come to our duty to one another. Our duty to one another. Yes, I'm going to be with the Lord. Yes, the Lord is coming, but that doesn't mean that I sit here twiddling my thumbs waiting for the Lord to come. Second Thessalonians, he'll get into that a little bit more because there were some people that were refusing to work. They're like, you know, the Lord's going to come and that'll just take care of all my problems. And Paul says, no, that's not the way it works. And so here, as he comes to the conclusion of this passage, he's telling us as, as believers as believers who have this, who are rooted in this reality, you have a duty to one another. You have duties to one another. Encourage one another. Come alongside of one another and, and build one another up. Help structure each other's thinking and each other's life according to the realities, according to the blueprint of the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what it is to build one another up, right? This isn't just kind of, you know, a feel-good statement and, and coming alongside and endorsing whatever you're doing. No, there's, there's some specific realities behind what he's saying here in our duty to one another. First of all, we're to encourage and build one another up out of sobriety. Therefore, in high school I had a pastor and whenever, I think almost invariably, whenever we came to a therefore in a passage, he would say, whenever you come to a therefore, you ask what it's there for. So what's it there for? Well, it's referring back to what he has just instructed us. Be sober because of your destiny. So the reality, the reality of your destiny, the reality of what Christ has done, the, the provisions that God has given to you. Encourage one another according to these wonderful things, according to the abundance of what God has given you in Christ Jesus. Encourage and build one another up out of sobriety, out of having our minds structured by the realities of what we have in Christ. But then also encourage and build one another up specifically and if we look forward, we're not going to have, we're not going to go through all of these, but in verses 12 through 20, Paul just gives a litany of very specific directions for believers. 
What, what does a sober-minded believer look like as they, as they work life out? Well, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish them and admonish you and esteem them highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil." This is one of those lists I go to when, when someone says, you know, I'm trying to figure out God's will for my life. <laughs> Say, well, let's start here. How's it going? Right? Because when we look, think about God's will scripturally, it's revealed. And that's where we always start. We do what we know God's will is. And, and you know, thinking about what Christ is, com- Christ is coming. Verse 18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. That's, that's a convicting one. Be sober-minded. The reality is Christ is coming, so I'm going to complain. Oh, wait a minute. That's not God's will. That's not living according to reality. Give thanks Always, for that's God's will in Christ Jesus. You see, as we encourage and build one another up, the Lord in His sufficient Word gives us specific ways to engage with one another so that we're truly doing that for the glory of God according to His will. And then finally, encourage and build up consistently. These are commands that are supposed to be happening all the time. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Just as you are doing. And Paul's, Paul's doing it too. I'm Thessalonians, I'm telling you to do what you're doing already. Keep on doing it. And I can say the same thing here to Truth Community Church. Keep on doing what you're doing. Keep building one another up. Keep encouraging one another according to the realities of God's Word, according to the realities of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our duty to one another based on the realities of what we anticipate in Christ's coming. So when we're attempted, when we're afflicted, when we're discouraged... Don't look back. You know, Lot's wife did that. It didn't work out very well. Don't look within. It's the worst place we can look. Don't look around. David did that, and it got him into a whole lot of trouble. Look up. Look up. Jesus said in Luke 21... That we are to look up because our redemption draws nigh. Look up to the Lord Jesus. James Smith, a pastor in the 1800s, 
had a devotional that was centered on that. Look up. Look up. Not back, not within, not around. Look up. Be sober because of your destiny. And what a glorious destiny we have in Christ our Savior. Lord God, we thank You tonight for Your love that was so freely poured out on us in Christ. We, we stand amazed at what You have accomplished, and we stand amazed as we anticipate what is yet to come. And, O oh Lord, we pray that the realities that You have laid out for us in Scripture, the glorious realities would motivate us, would stir us, would cause us to be grounded in the midst of the struggles of life, in You, in Christ, because of all the provision You've given. We give You praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.